Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike Perry, and I'm here with Brett Jones. Brett, how are you doing today, my friend? Fabulous. An actual sunny winter day here in Pittsburgh, uh, which which we appreciate, even though it's cold and I don't like being cold. But uh, yeah, it's good. How about it's you, good, Mike? Yeah, same I, thing I, here. I don't it's think actually, I... it's a you know, little sunny, little cold, but not super windy. So, you know, that's always a plus. But um Anywho, so today we're going to be talking about <laughs> power development, all right? And uh, we're going to be talking about some programming concepts, um, do's and don'ts, exercise selection, uh, velocity-based training, and uh, all sorts of things. So, you know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions or sort of uh, mistakes that people make when it comes to power development is is they, they treat it like conditioning. And um, if you are trying to maximize power, and, and I guess we can have the same conversation with speed because it, it does kind of tie in together. Um, you know, if you are really doing power development and or speed development, you, you really shouldn't be sucking wind. You shouldn't be tired whatsoever. Yes, there's going to be that initial burst of, of energy that you're going to be using. But if you're huffing and puffing and you're fatigued, you're not, you're not developing power, right? You're going to be developing some power, but you're not going to be tapping into that sort of sub-maximal, maximal effort. And I think people confuse this all the time because they feel like, hey, if if I'm not huffing and puffing or I'm not gassed, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, power is very, very different than conditioning. And people make these mistakes all the time. Um, I've seen it for years and I've made the mistake myself. So um, what are some other sort of, uh, do's and don'ts of, uh, power development, Brett? What do you, uh, what do you think, bud? So right off the bat, I'm, I'm going to kind of circle back and say that, uh, I'm, I slash we, and the, the kettlebell world are probably kind of part of the problem <laughs> as far, as far as that confusion and trying to use quote power exercises for conditioning and, and we'll talk about that because if you look at Quick and the Dead, if you look at ANA style programming, if you if you look at the fact that you can use a power based exercise like a kettlebell swing or a kettlebell snatch um, as a part of a well designed um, metabolic session where you're keying in on alactic and and uh, getting a little bit of glycolytic but not a lot and achieving an aerobic effect. Um, yeah, you can do that, but now we're not doing, you know, full power development. So I think the the water got muddied because exercises like swings and snatches and, and some other things kind of got thrown in the mix there. And because the Americanized version of GPP equals conditioning. Well, GPP is not just conditioning. GPP is everything but the sport specific stuff. 
So it is your power and your speed and your flexibility and your mobility and your metabolic work and your conditioning and your, you know, it's general physical preparedness. It includes it all. And so, you know, we, I, I think I'm throwing myself under the bus and saying that uh, I'm probably part of, and the kettlebell world is probably part of muddying that water and creating some confusion. Um, and, and I just, you know, had a thought uh, that uh, we should probably get Antonio Sculante back on here to uh, have a follow-up conversation on this because I know he'll be able to uh, shine uh, quite a bit of light on this. Um, but yeah, so mistakes made when when looking at power development is, uh, well, placement in a session, uh, the exercise selection, and uh, how are you measuring? How do you know you're being powerful? Because and I think that's where the using swings or snatches as a conditioning tool, and thinking you're doing power work, uh, I think that you you if you're measuring it, you'll find out something very different. Um, so I think those would be my top uh, top three sort of issues with with where people go with uh, training power. Yeah, and and I think one of the the big mistakes people make early on is they introduce power training prematurely to individuals that don't necessarily have any type of strength base. And it's really tough to be powerful if you don't have, you know, an appreciable strength base beforehand. And, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen scenarios and I'm not really calling anybody out, but I've seen these scenarios where they've got, you know, these young girls that are, you know, arms that look like twigs and they're trying to teach them to hang clean. And it's just like, okay, or, you know, maybe you like hang cleans or, or maybe for some reason you're, you're using that exercise for some other reason. But, you know, in my opinion, you know, spend three, four, five months doing the basics of deadlifting and squatting and splits, you know, split squatting and doing all those things first before you try to do power work, because, um, you know, you can't really do power work without an engine. Right. So, um, now if you are using some sort of, you know, box jump, or, you know, jumping strategies that's going to be quote unquote power. Well, you're not even doing a, a ton of power work yet. You're actually probably really better off focusing on jumping mechanics and landing mechanics and deceleration mechanics, because those are probably going to be um, uh, a little bit more appropriate for, for young athletes uh, right away, because, well, um, a big part of, of overall sort of GPP is, um, you know, be, being able to have that base level of strength, but also, um, being able to control your body both uh, in, in a slow and controlled fashion, but also dynamically. So, um, you know, that that's a big thing that I see is people kind of rush to power development without any base level of strength. Well, and it's uh, kind of like the uh, the the strong first, uh, you know, Metviev quote that strength is a master quality. Um, power is just strength applied quickly. Mm -hmm. um, not to not to be too simplistic with it, and there's probably an exercise physiologist or exercise scientist out there that'll send us an email uh, about my my oversimplification. But uh, power is just strength applied quickly. Well, if you don't have any strength, I don't care how quickly you apply it. It's it's not going to have the impact that you want. And so, yeah, uh, raise your strength and all of a sudden you'll be surprised how much more powerful you, you can be. So I, I love uh, keeping that focus on on that. And then what you said about jumping mechanics. Um, you know, strength is a skill. Power is a skill. If you want to be good at something, you should uh, practice it and you should have it dialed in. And so um, that 
um, that focus there makes, makes a huge difference. Um, the, not to make it about me, but, uh, you know, that was, that was where the whole iron cardio thing came from was I realized I wasn't strong enough to go back to ballistics, my swings and, and snatches and stuff. I, I wasn't ready for that sort of load. Um, I had to slow down and rebuild my strength base and then get back to it. And, you know, your power training has become popular across many, uh, many groups, right? It's, it's definitely, we look at it from an athletic standpoint and youth athletics. We look at it from a general pop standpoint. We also look at it in training seniors. You know, there are people out there that will, will talk about how important power training can be for that senior population. Um, you know, the ability to stand statically on one leg for 10 seconds is great, uh, but that's not balance. Balance is the ability to lose your center of mass, go get it and bring it back. And you need power in order to be able to do that. You need the strength base to handle it, but power is where you really start to change some of those qualities. But are they ready for it? You know, having, and, and I, I don't, I'm not so much into the metrics of you have to squat one and a half times body weight before you go, go into plyometrics and stuff like that. Um, I, that is a way to look at if somebody's uh, ready for it. But I, I, I agree. I think skipping the strength phase, it's a problem. Absolutely. So I want to dig a little bit deeper as far as, uh, you know, programming. And we're going to talk about, you know, you know, a little bit of low level plyometrics, because I, I think that's important when it comes to elasticity and um, yes, force production and even deceleration mechanics. I think that's important. But, you know, from a programming standpoint, when you are introducing um, a little bit of force production and a little bit of deceleration and landing mechanics, um, you can program a lot more volume than you could if someone was doing true maximal plyometrics like depth jumps and et cetera. So for example, if I'm working with some young soccer players um, and we're having them do box jumps, I always start them really, really low and I'll have them do sets of eight or sets of 10. And, and my big thing is early on, if you're going to jump to it, you need to be able to step off, step off and land. So everybody's so concerned about how high can you box jump? Cool. But in my opinion, if you can jump to it, you should be able to step down and stick that landing. So that's a very simple way to kind of tease out some stuff, right? Because what good is it if you're if you're all gas and no brakes? So um, and, and and the cool thing about that, I, Mike, I want, I, want, I want everybody to key in on one thing that you said. It was step down. Yes. And nail the landing. Yeah. He did not say jump down. Yep. And I, I want to key in on that because somebody out there heard jump down and you didn't. You said step down. Yep. And that is, yeah, I agree. I could not agree more that uh, box jumps are probably the most abused uh, training exercise uh, that there is. And they're just kind of misapplied. People think that a box jump can equate to a vertical leap and it doesn't. Um, a good box jump is great, but it's more about how you cycle the hip flexors and pull the hips up into that position versus how high you're actually jumping. So no, you know, dig a little bit deeper into that, the use of those box jumps and what you're actually accomplishing and key in on what Mike said, step down and nail the landing. And that sounds weird, makes, makes sense in my, my little brain, but definitely key in on that. And then if you're always stepping down with you know, ideally you step down and, you know, maybe it's both feet or make sure you're switching feet, 
uh, so that you're, you know, you're covering all your bases there. But I apologize for interrupting, but I wanted to key in on that real quick because that is a, a, a key, key point. Because when box jumps became very popular and people were jumping down, uh, especially if you're a middle aged guy, and I might be past middle aged now, it's kind of depressing. But if you're a middle aged guy and you're jumping back down, what did we start to see? Achilles, Achilles. tendon injuries. Yep. No, I mean, and, uh, and, and here's the scoop when you are working with younger athletes. Um, yes, there's, there's a lot that can go on. And when it comes to, you know, landing mechanics and, and learning how to get into that sort of, it's a kettlebell swing position. A box jump is essentially a kettlebell swing. Right. Um, but the cool thing is you do get that sort of, uh, that deceleration component. You're already up on top. So you might as well make use of the fact that you've already jumped up on a box and stick that landing because, um, you know, one of the things that I, people are, are just enamored with, and, and we see this in, in with strength coaches, it's, it's every single exercise we can do for speed, but a lot of people, the majority of people don't focus on deceleration, right? And, and um, speed's cool, but if you can't slow yourself down, I mean, look what happens at the drag strip when they, uh, you know, they put a, a car out there, a funny car that does 300 miles an hour and uh, the chute doesn't open. Guess what? Uh, that, 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 that vehicle is going to be destroyed pretty quickly. So, um, you know, it's, it's very, very simple. You can just set it up, boom, get, you know, teach them snap downs, teach them how to hinge, stick the landing, step down, hold a one Mississippi and just, you know, keep on going and, and working the reps. And the, and the cool thing about it too, is, um, like I said, you can accumulate volume. Obviously you're not going to murder people because there is the eccentric loading. And we know that uh, too much eccentric loading is, is going to lead to a little bit of delayed onset muscle soreness. So, uh, we don't want to abuse that, but, um, I think for young athletes, what it does is um, it does speed up the movement, right? And we we know that speed can be another form of compensation. So if you teach someone how to deadlift, um, which is a beautiful thing to do to teach the hinge, but as you start to, to introduce dynamic jumping, you may actually see a few different things from a, you know, from a, a, a valgus position or... Um, speed reveals some things, right? Speed, speed can absolutely um, alter some mechanics. So it gives you an opportunity to see what that hinge or that, you know, that movement looks like a little bit more sped up and then you can dial in and, and focus on their landing mechanics. But, um, you know, the, the moral of the story is if you're going to work with younger athletes, if they're going to jump onto something like a box jump, step down, stick the landing, rinse and repeat, and look for quality of movement, look for posture that can be replicated when you take off and when you land, the posture is pretty damn similar. And then when you land to the floor, the posture is similar again, right? You have to be able to land and toe heel hips. That's the way that I teach it. So you can actually sort of recycle if you want to get to the point where you're going to start working on elasticity, like doing maybe, you know, uh, two to three broad jumps in a row, you have to be able to recycle that energy with good mechanics. So, um, you know, if you are working with younger athletes, that's my approach. Now, here's the cool thing. You can take the exact same exercise and you can give it to someone that has a great training age and you can do, you know, four sets of two, five sets of two, and it can be very, very beneficial from a force production standpoint, and they can get a lot of benefit out of the box jump. So you can look at the box jump and you can, you can program it in two very, very different ways, depending on the athlete that you're working with and where they're at from a training standpoint. I love it. Uh, there's an old saying in, in, uh, pretty much football training, I think, uh, power punishes and speed kills. Well, your power will punish you and your speed will kill you. If you don't know, you don't have the base strength and technique and ability to patterning programming, uh, to control that. 
And so that that sort of progressive uh, application is is critical to safely applying this stuff. And you know, plyometrics is an interesting term, and and I'd encourage you know folks to go look at uh, super training and kind of or Verkashansky's um, sort of discussions on that, and everything from shock method, which would be the depth jumps and and uh, bounding or jumping out of the depth jump, um, versus power metric sort of exercises. And so there's a whole continuum there. Um, I think we've we as we have a tendency to do, uh, we generalize this concept of plyometrics and we put them all in the same bucket. There's some vastly different applications for plyometrics uh, with within that spectrum, uh, going from shock method at one extreme to um, something as simple as walking and running is plyometric at a at a certain point. So. What, and again, would probably be considered power metric or some uh, other derivation of, of the in within the, the spectrum. So um, if you're going to start using this with folks, dig a little deeper, read a little bit more, uh, make, make sure you're, you're applying this stuff uh, in, in, in the most appropriate way. And, you know, cause again, as you take this into a senior population, you know, we, we, we kind of expect that that young that youth athlete or that, that, um, athlete that's used to being pushed a high school, college, you know, um, a sort of athlete they're, they're used to being pushed a little bit. They're doing jumping and bounding anyway. And that was one of the studies that came out years ago where they compared a female, um, um, volleyball team, female basketball team, and who had the better vertical leap from a general standpoint. And it was the volleyball team, the volleyball team, the net is achievable for them. So blocking and 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 trying to stuff a, a spike or something like that, like that's an achievable thing to make those jumps. Um, at that time, this was a while ago. I am old. Um, the not many women uh, basketball players were dunking, and so the rim uh, and and getting up there was not really achievable. So guess what? They didn't spend a ton of time doing jumping. Yeah, the volleyball folks spent time jumping. Now look at that from a programming standpoint. If you tell me you're going to implement plyometrics with a with a volleyball team, and they're already having several hundred plyometric sort of jumps and and uh, drilling in their practice, why are you getting ready to add 200 more plyometric touches to their program? Think about the activities that you're getting involved in, um, and then maybe you choose a different power exercise versus a plyometric exercise. Maybe that's a situation where the kettlebell swing or Olympic lifts would be a much better power uh, choice because they're already getting several hundred plyometric touches in, in, in their practice. Yeah. And I would also argue uh, even regardless of the level of volleyball that you're at, you know, you know, putting these uh, athletes in situations where, and again, this wouldn't be really necessarily during like a mid-season thing, but in the off-season, you know, getting them to land, uh, you know, on on one leg and 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 getting them, you know, a lot of things that I'll do with like my ACL return to play stuff is once we're at a point where they can jump and land, I'll have them jump in the air and I'll bump them with a I'll bump them with a Swiss ball a little bit. So we we add in a little perturbation, right? And what that does is that sort of 
introduces them to a little bit of this sort of chaotic training, which is, which is something that they're going to see when they actually return to sport. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things that are missed is, you know, people do these return to play programs. And I know we're getting a little off track here, but they do all of these very, very rehearsed type jumps where they're in a ladder or they're jumping over hurdles and they know what's coming. Right. So they know they can anticipate so they can, they can essentially sort of they're, they're so prepared for it that they're not actually going to be put in an environment where they have to change direction, change levels and land in a, in a funky fashion. Right. So, um, you know, that's something that uh, athletes are going to need. They need to learn how to jump and land, whether it's you're jumping in the air and you're spinning around or, you know, you're face, facing different directions and you're landing on one leg first versus the other. I mean, those are all little things that are important. So, but that goes back to, you know, again, just trying to keep uh, athletes healthy, right. Everyone talks about, you know, performance stuff in the plyos, which is great. But again, it always comes back down to landing because if you look at where a lot of those, uh, those sort of non-contact ACL injuries come from, it's generally, um, a, a hard change of direction or it's a, it's a landing and, and, and it can happen different ways, but from a non-contact standpoint, those are the big two. So, um, yeah. you know, introducing your athletes to, to that when it's appropriate, um, can be a huge part of, uh, um, uh, sort of just their overall training program. And I can't say, I don't ever want to say we can reduce risk of injury because, um, that's, that's a, that's a whole different conversation, but what we can do is we can put them in an environment where they're exposed to different jumps, different landings, different angles, and hopefully they're resilient enough and they can move and they can decelerate and they can stick those landings in a way that they're not going to throw their lower extremities under the bus. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, hopefully if, if, People are, if they're still listening at this point, uh, they're picking up on the fact that uh, there's there's a good bit of base to be set here uh, from a strength standpoint, from a technique standpoint, uh, looking at the quality of the of the movement. Um, and I would say that uh, you alluded to this earlier, and I want to I want to drill down on it just a little bit. Um, you alluded to this idea that if you're if you're getting tired and and out of breath and and it's taken on a conditioning feel for your uh quote power work you're no longer training power um that ship has sailed uh because there is such an intense neurological component um when you talk to somebody like uh Derek Toshner who was a, a you know a D1 um 400 hurdles champion um uh, in the um in college um they would run a sprint every 15 minutes it wasn't uh the the one minute repeat like it was a sprint every 15 12 to 15 minutes when they were doing actual you know using sprinting as a power uh exercise um to increase their speed and increase their um and you know running's a power event how how quickly can you put a bunch of force into the ground um so um yeah, drill, drill down on that just a little bit more because I think the the sets, the reps, the rest um, is is an interesting aspect of this. Well, you know, I, I think um, I think one of the big things to understand is the difference between um, and and we can use this for for power and we can also use this for for speed work. The difference between like sprint repeats and sprint intervals, right? So if you're same thing with power repeats. Um, so if you look at the idea of doing something that's a repeat, when you're thinking about a repeat, you should have 
almost identical performances within those repeats. So, you know, set one should look the same, set two should look the same, three, four, five, right? So when you're looking at repeats, you, your goal is to repeat that same performance over and over again with, with really no drop-off. But when you are programming repeats, um, that is when you really have to look at how much you're dosing, right? And recovery time is huge because, um, you know, if you're doing anything, let's say over, you know, 10 seconds, you're automatically going to get a decrease in power. So a lot of those repeats need to be, that's the whole ANA protocol that needs to be, you know, four to five seconds of works, maybe maximum seven to eight, according to, you know, like Charlie Francis, we've got eight, eight seconds of free energy ATP. So, um, you know, I think we have to identify the difference between a sprint repeat, which again, is that identical performance over and over again, which you got to watch your volume and sprint intervals where, um, intervals, you can crush yourself a little bit more. Right. And everybody loves to do interval training. And, um, when I hear people saying I did, uh, 10 minutes of 30 thirties at max effort, I'm like, no, you didn't like, if you've ever done a real max effort, 30 second sprint, it's one of the most God awful things you've ever done. And, um, you know, there's a time and a place to introduce that glycolytic work. Right. And we do it for three, four weeks at tops with our, with our fighters. But, um, you know, I think understanding the difference in the application is huge because sprint intervals are a great conditioning tool. They're a great conditioning tool, but sprint repeats are a great power tool. And I think that's the huge difference, right? And you can do a lot more volume with sprint intervals or power intervals um, than you can with um, with repeats in general. And, um, you know, I think that's a big part of it is if you look at the, you know, like a lactic power and a lactic capacity, a, a lactic power, when you're looking at the true idea of what a lactic power is, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, eight second max effort bout of whatever you're doing followed by a boatload of rest. But if you are doing a lactic capacity where you're actually trying to improve your overall sort of a lactic system, you're going to start creeping towards 10, 12 seconds. And when you do that, you are starting to go a little bit of glycolytic. But what you're trying to do is get your body acclimated to that sort of acidosis where it can start to um, manage that over time. Because if your body's not acclimated to managing that, that type of metabolic waste, then um, it, it's going to be tough. So, you know, I, I, I think that from a programming standpoint, if you're doing sprint repeats, beginning of the workout. Okay. Sprint intervals, you're, you can get away with doing a little bit later. So if I'm trying to focus on power or speed right at the beginning of the session, if I'm doing intervals, I can do it after my lift because that that's where I feel like it, it makes a huge difference because there is a conditioning effect there with the intervals. There isn't a conditioning effect with repeats. That's more of a neurological effect. If anything, after a, after a handful of repeats, you should feel like ready to roll. You should feel like you had a you know strong cup of coffee. Well, and I the tie-in there for me is kind of the what's what is more easily measured now, but has been done for a while is velocity-based training. And so that sort of concept of um when you see bar speed slow down, um, when you see that they lack the ability to repeat the previous performance. Um, that those, those are metrics that we need to pay attention to. Um, if you don't have a tool to watch velocity, uh, like a, uh, a push band or a tendo unit, or, a you know, there's, there's many, many, many different options now, some of them more easily applied than others. Um, but you know, if you don't have that trust your coach's eye, if it looks like that rep was slower, it was <laughs> and, and rack it, you know, stop that set. 
uh, because if you look at, uh, if you go to trainwithpush.com and you look at Dan Baker and what Dan Baker, Chris Chapman have put together as far as some velocity-based training uh, research and information, when you see that power drop off, when you see that velocity drop off, um, you and you don't stop and you keep going. Uh, they they did a they did a, a research where it was uh, I think it was sets of eight versus sets of four and the sets of four group stopped at a velocity drop off of like I think it was ten percent with their power exercises and twenty percent with their maybe it was twenty yeah something I can't remember all the details of the study and then the the set the people that were doing sets of eight were allowed to kind of push past a twenty to thirty percent drop off I think maybe it was ten percent twenty percent regardless. The group who stopped at the uh, less drop-off and was doing sets of four uh, was ready to train again, metabolically, neurologically, mechanically, ready to train again within about 24 hours. The group who pushed to the sets of eight and who were suffering the velocity drop, they it took 72 hours and more before they were recovered and ready to train again. I know which one I'd choose. Um, and I, I think that the, that pulling that back, you know, saying that if we're actually going to work power, if we're going to monitor this in some fashion and we can say, okay, that repeat was not the same. You're done for today. Instead of saying, well, little Susie, you just need to push harder. Uh, you know, that be willing to stop. Yeah. And, and I would argue that less is more when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the dosage, of sets and reps. Um, you know, even when I'm programming, um, you know, my power days for my, for my fighters, I've actually started introducing a dedicated power day. Um, and I use that as a setup day. What I do on that power day is again, we do a lot of bouts. Um, and when I say a lot, I'm talking, you know, maybe we, maybe six exercises total and three or four sets and all of those reps are under five. But what we do is I know that if we're, we're doing it correctly, their nervous system is going to be primed for the next day. And they're going to be flying, right? So I use my power work as a setup day, and um, and it's worked quite well. The guys leave, and and they they're just feeling good. They don't feel like smashed, and and they don't feel like they can't do anything later. And um, you know, you can use those power days, right? If you really want to do some power work, you can use those as a setup day. So let's say you know, like on a Wednesday evening, you know, you have to perform at a high level. You know, doing some uh, some uh, some power work the the day prior is a nice setup day. Uh, to get their nervous system going. And, you know, obviously just don't like that evening, don't murder them with a bunch of conditioning and and sort of uh, spoil, spoil everything that you worked hard for. But um, I've seen some cool stuff as far as readiness goes in HRV and, and it's been really cool. But, um, you know, I think a, a big part of, of power development too is plan on resting way more than you're actually working. And I forget what it was, but I did, I did some math on, you know, some deadlifts with one of my clients. And, and the math was basically like how much time you spend resting versus how much time you spend actually working. And it was something along the lines of, um, you know, the total work time was like one minute and the total rest time was like 20 minutes. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, Oh my gosh. Right. And yeah, that's deadlift. We're not going to necessarily call that power, but we were lifting really, really heavy. So, but still there's a neurological component that you need to, you need to think of. Right. And if you want to really, you know, get strong, you need to have that, that significant rest between sets. So um, I would definitely say, make sure that you have to plan on longer sessions because not because you're working more, it's just because you're resting more. And that can be tough for athletes 
because they just want to be doing stuff 24 seven. And, you know, there's some things that you can sneak in there from a, from a corrective standpoint, or um, even if you're not into the corrective game, you can do, uh, you know, something that's not going to be sort of contraindicated within their workout. Right. So, um, you know, you have to be smart about that, but um, yeah, <laughs> I've been yapping right now. Um, but um, let's, let's kind of talk a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of kettlebells and power, because that's something, you know, a lot of people that listen or know us from strong first, et cetera. Um, so let's say Brett, you've got someone that's got a decent level of, of, you know, a decent base level of strength and they want to start doing a little bit of power development with the kettlebell. How would you set that up from a, from a programming standpoint? Um, well, I, I circle right back to setting the foundation, good strength, make sure, you know, for a lot of beginners and, and I'll separate that out into uh, beginner versus more advanced students for a beginner, I'm going to keep them deadlifting for a while. If I want to do swings with a 24 kilo, I want them deadlifting the 48 with confidence. If they're going to deadlift this, if they're going to swing the 16, I want them deadlifting the 32. And that, that just is a minimum uh, that begins to set a foundation for being able to control the, the, the power that's possible in the swing. Um, then we'll start with uh, something like dead swings, uh, three to five reps in a set, maybe five sets with plenty of rest in between. Um, and then maybe that becomes a solid five by five, where then we start to creep up a rep at a time um, and, you know, staying below the 20 to 30 second time frame is important, uh, a, because if you're going to treat it as a power exercise and you can go look at the charts past 20 seconds, you are producing 50% of the power that you were at the beginning. I don't care how tough you think you are. I don't care what you think you're doing. You're going to drop off period. Yeah. So we're going to stay sub typically sub 20 seconds, maybe occasionally we'll push into a 30 second set, just depending on, you know, um, uh, the skill of the person that we're working with or the goal, you know, that's somebody that I'm maybe working towards a little bit of peaking um, sort of uh, mindset. So from that base, then we start going into something like an ANA protocol where we're doing three to five reps at the top of a minute or a minute and a half, dare I say every two minutes. Uh, depending on down, that. that's crazy talk. Um, but that allows me to know, uh, going back to that repeat versus interval sort of mindset, that allows me to have a, a higher degree of confidence that I'm going to be able to repeat those three to five reps with that same sort of intention, with that same sort of uh, acceleration. I mean, if you're using something like a push band uh, or an accelerometer of of some sort, and you're actually tracking the velocity, and you can see what's happening within the reps uh you're going to be able to to you know monitor that a little bit uh, more closely but um and that that was one of the things when i when i first started working with the push band um i i had to put together an awful protocol for me to find a, a velocity and power drop off um and i was suffering <laughs> to 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 show that but when I was doing the ANA or the Q and D style of training, I couldn't find a power drop off. Yeah. I was the 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 protocols are designed in such a way, and and granted, I'm not a newbie. I've I've been doing this for a couple couple minutes, 
And so, you know, I, for me, those work rest ratios, those protocols, I know I'm able to repeat the effort from set to set to set. So it's a progression from the setting the baseline to some very low rep work to some moderate range work. And then we start getting into these protocols where we know we're hitting those repeats. And so that's, that's where I go is uh, with a, with the swing. And when we look at it, when you look at power metric or plyometric sort of exercises and taking impact and producing, you know, power for a jump and landing and things of that nature. um, If you give me that senior population that needs to be training power, plyos are not my first choice. (laughs) Swings are my first choice. Because I know I can get them to produce good hip extension power um, and and but in a very safe manner where we're producing a lot of force and training the eccentric, but we're not taking the impact because run the numbers on the impact real quick. If you're running downhill, just something as simple as running downhill, you can start taking 10 times body weight eccentric load. If you're sprinting, you can be in the six or so times body weight load on each leg. If you're running, you're already at two to four times body weight load. So you start running the numbers on that. Take a 200-pound individual, 10 times body weight. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's a big number. And if you're running downhill, that's on a single leg. I don't know of anybody that has a 2000 pound single leg squat. I do. Oh man. I want video. But, but you know what, you know what that makes me think of though, that makes me think of training youth athletes, right? You get middle school athletes and everyone's like, it's going to stunt your growth. It's going to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, they're out there sprinting. And when you sprint again, four to six times body weight through each lower, you know, lower extremity. So you get a, you know, a hundred pound kid, you know, you got four to 600 pounds through each leg every time they sprint. And you're going to tell me a, a 12 kilo goblet squat's going to stunt their growth. I mean, get the hell out of here, right? It's just, it doesn't work that way. But um, I do want to talk about some quick testing stuff and and, and some simple ways that you can, um, you know, use some basic sports science and testing. I got to give my buddy Devin McConnell a shout out. Um, he's got a book called Intent. Um, uh, Devin is a, a close friend of mine and uh, he is a brilliant strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist. Um, he's been training in the NHL uh, as a strength coach for quite some time. And, and uh, he's just not only is he a brilliant, uh, you know, sports scientist and, and a brilliant coach, but he's just one of the one of the greatest people out there. And uh, he's such a great dude. So Devin McConnell intent, uh, you can get that on uh, on Amazon. But, you know, there are some very, very simple ways that you can look at. Um, sort of monitoring um, some basic power work. And, uh, you know, you can go old school chalk on a wall, right? Get a little bit of chalk on your hand and jump up and tap it. If you have a Vertec, you can use those. Um, but again, that's, you know, money you got to spend. Same thing with like a just jump mat. I'm a big fan of just jump mats. But if you don't have the money, you know, you can go old school, just, you know, a little bit of uh, a little bit of chalk on your hand, jump up and tap. And, and that's your basic metric, right? One of the things that I do with my athletes is um, one of my favorite uh, ways to train lower body power is doing a single leg broad jump with a bilateral stick. So I warm them up. And we have lines at our gym, and I just have them put a mark of tape. I'm like, this is your target, you got to you got to hit that target. And we're only doing maybe, you know, three to four sets of three reps. So they're not smashing themselves, but um, they can be super powerful, but it's a really easy way for them to repeat that performance. Because if you give it an athlete a target, they're more apt to hit it instead of just saying, just jump far. Right. So I think that's a simple way. If you are working with athletes and you want them to be powerful, just 
you know, a simple, simple baseline, two pieces of tape. Um, and that's all you need, right? It's a very, very simple way to repeat that performance um, without having to spend a ton of money in technology, right? If you don't have a, a coach available or a coach that can actually see a drop in power, um, that's a very, very simple way to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, you get creative, same thing with medicine balls, right? If you're throwing medicine balls, whether you want to do like a reverse throw outside, we don't have the, the clearance here at the gym, but man, if you get a light medicine ball and you want to start working on reverse throws, just get out there and mark it, right? Just throw that ball, see where it lands, mark it and, and start to, you know, have that as a target. It's a very, very simple way to do it. But remember the rules, right? If you start to see a, a giant drop off and in, in how far that ball's going or how long you're jumping, then it, it's time to pull the plug. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when, when it boils down to this stuff, less is more. And, um, you know, if you can find ways to measure that power, whether it's, you know, velocity-based training using a, a push band or a tendo unit or force plates or whatever. Cool. If you have the money, that's awesome. But um, you can go a little old school and, and it still works, right? Um, you know, 10, 12 years ago when people couldn't just buy force plates, it's, you know, had to go a little bit old school. So, um, you know, I think to, to sort of wind us down, I think less is more. If your goal is power, you need to be strong first. That, that was a pun intended. And, um, you know, I think if you can measure it, I, I think that's very, very important. So again, you know that you're repeating that power over and over and over again. Well, and last thing, uh, the confusion between accelerating a bar and training power, because if you're still connected to the bar, you're actually spending the last half to third of that motion, slowing it down. Yep. So you might be super quick off the chest, use a bench press as an example. You might be super quick off the chest, but your brain goes, uh-oh, we're still attached to this thing. Mm -hmm. And so to find lockout, it will actually slow you down. Mm -hmm. um, so I see people doing like quick chopping movements, holding on to a heavy kettlebell or even a moderate kettlebell. And I'm just like, oh my God, you're not doing power training. You're 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 actually training yourself to slow down to to yeah, actually tighten up and yeah you're training deceleration but not even in a way that would be useful yeah um so you know the difference between doing a an accelerated bench press and a bench press release is night and day when you yeah. can accelerate all the way through the movement and this is where i think the swing succeeds again because full range of motion for the swing is at the hips i get to fully express and not slow down uh, into the lockout of, of my swing and snatch because um, I'm creating that ballistic. And so we've obviously scratched the surface and <laughs> we're going to get somebody like Devin or somebody like Antonio back on to dive a little bit further into this topic with us. Um, for most people, and just last, sorry, last thing, for 95% <laughs> of the population, kettlebell swings. Yep. Properly programmed, properly progressed, are going to take care of a lot of your power needs, especially when you set a good strength base. And TB to be continued at some future date. Absolutely. So, all right, another one in the books. Well, Brett, it's as always, it's good to uh, chat with you. Uh, for, if you did like this podcast, do us a huge favor and give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to. And we will see you on the next episode. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. 
Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.